The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. On with the show. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Today we have another great show. You know, last week I said it was the best show we've ever had. Well, today is going to be better. Daniel Bergner has written a book called The Mind and the Moon, and it's about mental health. We've been talking about mental health for many weeks now with all the shootings around the country, but this one has a little bit different take on it. We're talking about prescription drugs and how they're used to treat mental health patients. Daniel Bergner has a brother who was institutionalized and on many drugs. He came off the drugs, and he's a very successful individual today. And also, I didn't know this before the interview, but it has a Seattle backdrop to it. I literally just finished watching Dope Sick, and it's about the history of the rise and fall of Purdue Drug Company and their vast distribution of the drug OxyContin. And I watched it on Hulu. I suggest you watch this show again about the abuse of drugs. I'm not going to go into detail about the eight-part series, but really demonstrates the hold that these drug companies can have over people. Spotlight on Success for Today with Eric Crema focuses on Everett. We try to profile various communities around the Puget Sound region, and today it's Everett's turn Eric visited with the Deputy Mayor, Nick Harbour, and Tourism and Events Coordinator, Tyler Chisholm. A lot is happening in Everett right now, and we talked about special events for the rest of the summer and into the fall. Today's one-hit wonder, it's a love song from a son to a stepfather for having taken over a family of seven. The year was 1969. Voices of History Today takes place between July 11th and the 15th, and between the years 1921 and 1978. Jim Whitaker was the first American to scale Mount Everest in 1963. I had an interview with him about 25 years ago about this and other activities he was up to. Jim is 93 years old, and he lives in Port Townsend with his wife, Diane Roberts. One of the questions I asked him is that when he got on top of the world, looking down over all of the mountains, what was his first thought? And he said something along the lines, how am I going to get down? And that's the type of the interview I had with him 25 years ago. Very candid and very enjoyable. Now, what's Voices of Experience all about? We profile people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, history, current events, and with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. Now, if you have any comments you'd like to make about the show, suggestions for future topics, what you like about the program, what you would like to see us do, you can call the Voices of Experience Message Center at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Let us know what you're thinking. Mountain climber Jim Whitaker from an interview I had 25 years ago, 
coming up next. Where would you love to live? Have you explored today's market? When I spoke with Heather Ramos, she instantly put me at ease. I'm Coach Debbie from Story U, and I recommend Heather to first-time buyers or dream home shoppers and everyone in between. Let Heather's experience lead you to a perfect location and style and all within your budget. Contact Heather Ramos at Keller Williams. That's Heather Ramos at KW.com. Legendary mountain climber and Northwesterner Jim Whitaker is with us today, U.S. West Profiles of Experience. When did you first know that you wanted to climb mountains? Um, I was a Boy Scout back there in Troop 272 in West Seattle and, uh, a long time ago, and we used to take hikes up in the Olympics and Cascades, and they led up the trails led up to the mountains, and so we learned a little bit about scrambling and so forth and get up in some pretty hairy places and then decided, hey, we better learn something about it. So I joined the Mountaineers Club and began uh, went through the climbing course and so forth. And then uh, early in uh, 1948, I began to guide up on uh, Mount Rainier, uh, taking people out to the ice caves and up to the summit. And do you remember like a defining moment when you said, this is what I want to do? I knew I loved the outdoors early on, uh, you know, even before Boy Scout. My parents would take me for walks down to the beach there and and Fauntleroy and so forth, and I w- would walk from Fauntleroy all the way up to Arbor Heights every day to, from home to school and back. And, and uh, you know, I just grew to love the outdoors, and so that this was a, sort of a natural extension of it. And, and uh, everything is so clean. Nature's a good teacher. We, you know, it's it's wonderful to stand up on top of mountains and to be in the forest. And actually, we've been programmed for centuries to do that. You know, so it's just recently we've been locked up in buildings in, on these, uh, in these bottles with wheels that go down asphalt trails. Your parents, were they outdoorsmen, or was this something yeah. that you kind of adopted? So they were. They kind of yeah, they led the way. Of, yeah, they sort of led the way. And, uh, you know, the out-of-doors is all, yeah, it's been my life. And so, you know, the climbing was a part of it. REI was selling equipment that would let people go into the out-of-doors. And so that was, you know, sort of my my vocation, and then, and then my hobbies were climbing and skiing and all of that stuff, sailing. You climb on Mount Everest in 1963. How did that develop and all come together? Well, I've been climbing, uh, guiding on Rainier, and was my both my brother and I, Lou, were well known as, as strong, very strong climbers, and so I got a phone call from Norman Durnford, the Swiss fellow that lived in Santa Monica and had thought about forming an expedition to climb Mount Everest, American expedition. So it was, you know, relatively unclimbed and, uh, you know, so I got a phone call asking if I'd like to join uh, an American Mount Everest expedition and, you know, it took me a long time to decide, almost 60 seconds and I said sure and uh, was invited to go along. You know, the whole thing is a, is a series of exciting moments uh, that I guess the worst was uh, the second day we were climbing on the mountain when we lost one of our, our team, uh, Jake Breitenbach, was a guide from Jackson, Wyoming. And uh, they were climbing an ice wall that I had gone up the day before to put route on. There was no other way around it. Uh, we had to go up the wall. And uh, Jake was there when the wall collapsed, uh, and it killed him. So we lost one of our team just the second day on the mountain. And that was a pretty tough, pretty tough thing to to overcome, some of the team decided not to do that wall and would stay in base camp and help out, but not, but not climb the mountains. The rest of us thought, well, we, 
We could, you know, we had more reason to cut the mountain even uh, because of Jake. So, what was it like standing on the top of Mount Everest? <laughs> I got asked that a lot. And uh, when we were, when I crawled out of the high camp at twenty-seven thousand five hundred feet with Gombu, a Sherpa that I was climbing with, uh, we were battered by fifty mile an hour winds, and it was thirty-five below zero uh, without the wind chill factor. So we started up in, in storms. No one else moved on the mountain that day. Everyone said it couldn't be climbed in that weather, and the weather was too bad to go out, so they stayed in their tents. But Tom and I had only enough oxygen to go to the summit or back down to lower camp. So it was my last and only chance to get the summit of Mount Everest. So we took off and uh, fought our way up. I got some serious frostbite on the face. I was blind in one eye. When we reached the summit, we were out of bottled oxygen. We stood on the summit 20 minutes, and so we started down without bottled oxygen. They asked Gambu at our first press conference in New Delhi, they said, what was the first thing you thought of after having reached the highest point of Earth when you stood there on the summit of summits? And he answered for me as well when he said, how to get down. <laughs> that was the answer. And that was Jim Whitaker, and he'll be back next week for part two of our interview on U.S. West Profiles of Experience. Legendary mountain climber and Northwesterner Jim Whitaker is with us today on U.S. West Profiles of Experience. Well, let's talk about your newest adventure, and that is a sail around the world. Just want to let the listeners know that you're talking to us from your sailboat. You're preparing it for a trip that's going to leave from Port Townsend on October 15th. All right, it's a circumnavigation of the planet. We thought we'd take our 11- and 13-year-old boys out uh, and, and show them a little bit about the world and, and about what a wonderful place it is if you can just get out in it. And what's your uh, route going to be? We'll go down the coast, uh, stop in Santa Cruz, we have friends there, and then go on down into San Diego, wait for the hurricane season to end in uh, Mexico, then go into the Sea of Cortez in Mexico for a few months, then head across into the Marquises uh, and uh, the South Seas. And then, of course, you go from there to Australia and then up into... Uh, the Solomons up into the uh, Bay of India. We plan to leave our boat in Bombay. My friend Gambu, who climbed Everest with oh, me, okay. will have a family. His family I live on board while we go in for a trek to the base of Everest and take the, take my two sons and a few other friends that might want to go. And then we'll come back to the boat and continue up north through Suez Canal into uh, Mediterranean. And I've got friends in Russia from my peace climb in 1990 on Everest. We'll go see them at Odessa, and then uh, go into uh, Norway, Sweden, maybe even touch uh, Greenland, and then come back down the uh, Atlantic coast, Panama Canal, back up California. And then how long do you project this is going to take? We talked to people that say, yeah, they left. They started for years, a year's trip, and they're nine years later, they're yeah. still into the trip. So we're saying two to three years uh, on a circumnavigation. But the thing is, if you find a country... You know, you're docked into a wonderful country that, you know, it's nice, and the children are learning the language and so forth, and you might stay there a few months. It's hard to say. Well, I just don't think there's enough adventure in your life. Well, there's one thing we can give the children. They're not going to take a hell of a lot of money uh, from an, uh, any big inheritance or anything, but they we can give them a sense of of belonging to the planet, and it's a beautiful planet, and, and uh, we want them to enjoy it as much as we have, and adventure is something that we can give the kids. The other thing is that we'll be communicating with children around the country through the eyes of our children of what, we'll have computers on board, so we'll be able to talk on the internet 
wonderful. Uh, with the kids, so the kids will be oh, able to that tell fabulous. when we pull into a village or into a bay or somewhere of some foreign country and, and maybe even go to the schools, uh, they can convey what they see. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, taking the advantage of technology and, and meshing that together incredibly well. Absolutely. Actually, Microsoft is helping us uh, set up some equipment so we can communicate uh, on almost a weekly basis. Thank you very much, Jim. Hey, and again, best to you. Okay, same here. Water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. Get on board. So today's Voices in History, we span the time of July 11th through July 15th. On July 11th, 1995, the U.S. established diplomatic relations with Vietnam after 20 years after the fall of Saigon. President Clinton established full diplomatic relations with Vietnam. Now, many Republicans were against establishing diplomatic relations until Republican Senator John McCain, who was a Navy pilot, shot down over North Vietnam during the war and spent five years in a Vietnam prison, said it was time to move on and supported the measure. On July 12, 1984, Geraldine Ferraro became the first woman vice presidential candidate chosen by Walter Mondale to run against Ronald Reagan in the fall of 1984. On July 12, 1957, President Eisenhower takes the first presidential ride in a helicopter. This is a good one. I, probably a lot of you will remember this one. On July 12, 1979, this became unofficially known as the end of disco, and it came as a result of a scheduled doubleheader, a baseball game between the home team Chicago White Sox and the visiting Detroit Tigers. Now, disco had probably run its course, but was killed by a public backlash after the disco demolition at Chicago's Kaminsky Park went really bad. The idea was advanced by two Chicago DJs. They were going to blow up disco records between games of the doubleheader. The expected crowd of about 15,000 turned out to be about 40,000 inside the stadium and 40,000 outside the stadium. Also, let's add to this 10-cent beer night. What could go wrong, right? Well, everything went wrong. An angry crowd invaded the field between games, lit fires in the outfield, and rioting broke out. Another mistake by the Chicago White Sox is that they encouraged people to bring albums to the game, again, to put into the bins to be burned between games, but the crowd was able to bring the albums in the stadium. They didn't take the records as they entered the stadium, so they had them up in the stands. And guess what happened? Those became pretty lethal projectiles. Overall, a bad night. The second game of the doubleheader was canceled and awarded to Detroit. I don't think the uh, Chicago White Sox management took another meeting with these uh, two DJs again about possible promotion. On July 13, 1960, Senator John F. Kennedy was nominated for the presidency at the Democratic Convention in Los Angeles. 
And on July 15, 2006, the San Francisco-based podcasting company Bodell officially released Twitter. The goal? A short-term messaging service for groups and the public, which worked out pretty well. Amazing that Elon Musk put a bid in to take over Twitter for $40 billion plus, and now has withdrawn that offer, so things are up in the air again, to put it politely. It will be interesting to see how the billionaires behave now. And on July 15, 1971, then President Nixon announces he would visit Communist China. This was a big deal back then because no president had even suggested setting foot in China. And a little closer to home this week in history, Kitsap County got its current name on July 13, 1857. Originally called Slaughter County, after a U.S. lieutenant who was killed by a Native American Indian in King County. It was renamed Kitsap County in honor of the Suquamish War Chief, who in 1825 defeated the marauding Coachan warriors at Dungeness Pit. Now, Lieutenant Slaughter had another setback in the naming department. In 1893, the King County town of Slaughter changed its name to Auburn. If you enjoy these vignettes as much as I do, all you need to do is Google the History Channel, and I also mentioned that I get the local segments in the state of Washington from the HistoryLink.org website. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Now, Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. My guest is author Daniel Bergner. He explores the treatment of mental illness in his newest book, the Mind and the Moon. You'll understand why he came up with that title shortly into the interview. He writes about his younger brother, among others, who struggle with mental health issues. His brother's story is pretty remarkable. Mr. Bergner believes that drugs have been used way too often as a treatment for mental illnesses. He also believes that not enough attention is being given to the serious side effects that prescription drugs may cause. He lives in Brooklyn, New York, and something I didn't know prior to the interview is that he spent his early years in Seattle, and that is some of the backdrop of his book. Let's start there. I mean, first of all, I just learned, Daniel, that uh, the backdrop for this book took place in Seattle. But first of all, what inspired your book? And um, from what I understand, it starts with your brother's journey. It does, and that's the inspiration for the book. So when we were in our early 20s and living in Seattle, he was diagnosed as severely bipolar. 
was on locked wards, given heavy medication, told he would need to stay on that heavy medication the rest of his life, or that there was a high risk of suicide. So my dad was very rationally, scientifically oriented, and he ran the Seattle King County Public Health Department. And he had done some wonderful things. He lowered the uh, risk of a really uh, debilitating heart attack in Seattle. Before that, he lowered the risk of uh, kids tumbling from open windows in New York City. But he was at a loss about how to deal with my brother's diagnosis. He wanted to fix it. He wanted to fix it like he'd fixed other things. And basically that led to a pretty difficult family story. But to flash forward, my brother, who's a pianist, eventually took himself off medication against psychiatric advice. And with a couple of bumps in his 30s, has lived a flourishing life ever since, so for decades now. And that raised all kinds of questions for us, uh, questions that I explore in the book, both through three personal stories, but then through some really prominent brain researchers that I got to know well. So what is the significance of the book's title, The Mind and the Moon? Very glad you asked. So back in the 60s, early 60s, President Kennedy promised that we'd get to the moon. And of course, we did quite quickly. He also promised just weeks before his assassination that we would get to the remote reaches of the mind, his words, and cure mental illness. That has proved much more elusive. Sorry, the moon was easy to get to, the mind wasn't. The question is why? And these neuroscientists, brain researchers I spent so much time with, illuminated the problem. It was fascinating to be in their labs, to learn about, say, how the hippocampus communicates with the prefrontal cortex. The big lesson was, look, this is not like any other organ in the body. As one depression researcher told me, you can look at the heart cell and it's pumping. It's doing what the heart does. You cannot look at the brain cell, the neuron, and see it thinking. And his point was, this is just a huge magnitude of difference, and it raises all kinds of questions about whether we can medicate ourselves to mental health, where we need to go next, given that over and over I was told psychiatry really hasn't improved on medication in the last half century. My perception is is that it, I mean, this could be stereotypic, but... It's like you go to um, the medical profession in, in um, you know, psychiatric care, and it's like, okay, here, what do you need uh, as far as a prescription? Thank you very much. Next. All too often, that 15-minute session is what we get. And I think what I was hearing over and over from scientists, one of whom really encapsulated for me, he said, it's time for epistemological humility. And what he meant was, we for all our expertise, need to acknowledge all we do not know, and that might allow us to see the patient not as an assembly of symptoms, 15 minutes, here's your medication, goodbye, but as an individual, as an individual, importantly, who can take part in his or her treatment, in his or her decisions about treatment. It's really a whole different way of looking. So, I worry sometimes when people hear me say, no improvement in medication for 50 years, they're thinking this is a really dark book. Actually, it's kind of an optimistic book because I think there really are new directions that we can take in terms of thinking about and addressing. And what would some health. of those be? One, let's take the most 
alarming situation. We have a child or a sibling who's suicidal, and I have been there, and it is terrifying. Our impulse is to control the situation, make sure that child is on a psychiatric ward. So at least for those two weeks, no suicide is possible, never mind that the outcomes long-term don't really improve. What Caroline, the second of my main characters, would say, and she has dealt with it all personally, is take off your cape when you're trying to fix, when you're trying to control, you are not connecting. You can't hear. You're letting your fear overtake your ability to really deeply interact. You're actually increasing that person's isolation, and it's the isolation, the feelings that are walled around you that leads to suicide. So she's got an amazing set of programs going. It's catching momentum around the country. It's just been fascinating to me to watch someone with a pretty severe diagnosis. She's been hearing voices since she was a little kid, kind of a doomed diagnosis in the eyes of conventional psychiatry. But she is a highly, highly functional human being. For a quick, funny example, we were emailing about Melville yesterday morning who is changing the way we think about mental health. One of the things that I want to mention and maybe skip ahead is that, am I anywhere close on this statistic that kids, let's say, once they were born up to the, let's say, 10 or 12 years old, that more than half of them have already been on some sort of drugs? I don't know if it's as much as half, but it's certainly an increasing percentage. Here's an alarming statistic. Over recent decades, the number of bipolar diagnoses has, among kids has gone up by 40 times. Now, that begs all kinds of questions. Maybe that condition was underdiagnosed previously, maybe, but 40 times makes one wonder what is happening here. Reality hasn't changed. My child's basic baseline condition hasn't changed, but 40 times says, they're forced that were partly pharmaceutical forces that have changed the way we think about psychiatric conditions that may for some, not for all, I don't want to preach against medication, that would be arrogant and irresponsible. But we may be over-diagnosing, over-prescribing when we could be taking other routes. I remember I was visiting a family on the East Coast, and there was a son who was in school, and I think he was about eight years old, as I recall. They were reading a report, and um, some of the things that were said is that he squirms in his seat, he uh, puts his head down on the, t uh, the desk, his shoes are untied, he likes to visit and all this. And this was like putting something in writing about his, I guess, mental health and his stability and things, and or evaluation as to this boy. And I'm going, eight years old? I was doing the same stuff. But I am consider myself fortunate that we didn't have this oversight that young and just going, hey, he's a boy. He'll grow out of it. I so agree. And if you look at the comparative statistics between us here in the United States and Europe, our rate of diagnosing ADHD-related behavioral disorders is significantly higher. And an even more extreme example, if you look at diagnosis among foster children, it's sky high compared to the children of the rest of us. 
I want to go back to the beginning about your brother. Were you really on this from the beginning and perhaps assumed that everything was being done procedurally correctly? And then it started to occur to you that there must be a different way of treating this. To be candid, I occupied a kind of middle ground. My parents wanted a full ally in terms of believing their very medicalized approach. And I was uncomfortable with it, but not, I'd say, fully engaging with it. It was later that I really, really began to question as my brother turned his life around. And as at the very least, he called into question all these ideas of permanence. You and I know that our cells are not permanent. We change. Why not acknowledge that that's true of those we diagnose? It's all about the self and how we see ourselves. And I hope these three stories really illuminate these questions. Well, I think you've done that in the book. I've perused it. I'm going to continue to dig into it. I think you've raised some really good issues that need to be uh, attended to. I mean, we need to have this discussion. It's some of the things that I've felt before, that we are over-medicating people, and it's just kind of, I wonder about the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, they have a reason for medicating people, and that's the profit, and I'm just wondering if we can ever turn that back, or they have lobbyists in Washington that will keep us from doing that. I think we actually can at least a little bit turn a corner. So, and I'm hopeful that we are. My thanks to Daniel Bergner. And if you'd like to get a copy of his book, all you need to do is Google his name, Daniel Bergner, spelled B-E-R-G-N-E-R. There are other award-winning books on his website, but again, the book we have just been discussing is Mind and the Moon. One more time, that's Daniel Bergner, B-E-R-G-N-E-R. There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Base is loaded. The Seattle Mariners trail the L.A. Dodgers by three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. Who would you rather see step up to the plate? Mitch Hanniger or a promising but yet untested player just called up from the minors? If Mitch Hanniger is your choice, that means experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and Adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. On today's Spotlight on Success, I'm speaking with Nick Harper, Deputy Mayor for the City of Everett, and Tyler Chisholm, Tourism and Events Coordinator, also for the City of Everett. How are you two doing today? Doing great, Eric. Thank you. Well, thanks. Yeah, thank you for joining me via Zoom. I always need to say that. And so if there's any sort of audio quality, people know what's going on. I'll look forward to hopefully one of these days have you both in the studio here once this whole, oh, I don't know, you may have heard of it, pandemic gets over with. Yeah, looking forward to that. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, starting with you, Nick, can you tell me a little bit about what it is to be a deputy mayor? What are some of the things that you do there for the city of Everett? Sure, thank you. Um, 
So I started in this position. It is an appointed position, not an elected one. Sometimes there's confusion there, but uh, Mayor Franklin, after being elected in 2017, brought me into this role at the beginning of her first term, 2018. Mm-hmm. And my role is really to manage most of the city's external facing departments. So certainly the, the tourism and events work that Tyler does, our economic development portfolio generally, our communications and marketing team, our planning and uh, land use, housing, community development, resource development, grants, uh, climate sustainability work. A lot of the things that our community kind of touches and feels, permit services, those are the types of departments within the city that I am charged with uh, supervising. Sort of a busy desk, it sounds like to me. (laughs) That's amazing. That's a lot of work. Um, Just for those people who might not know or maybe new to the area or listening via podcast outside uh, the Seattle area and Seattle Everett area, what size is the city compared to uh, others here in the state? And so we're just north of 112,000 residents, I believe, based on our most recent population count. So we're about half the size of Tacoma, mm-hmm. yeah, a fifth of the size of Seattle, uh, but the largest city in Snohomish County, based on Puget Sound Regional Council, the only metropolitan center within Snohomish County. So we have very uh, significant growth targets looking out 20, 30, 40 years in a land use planning perspective. Um but uh, yeah, so. and certainly a very important city when it comes to being a port. Um, of course, military and uh, manufacturing as well. Yeah, our largest employers within the city of Everett are certainly Boeing, Snohomish County, Naval Station Everett. The port of Everett does a tremendous amount of container work, in particular, to support the aerospace industry. Understand. And Tyler, uh, your title sort of gives it away: tourism and events coordinator. You're all about uh, bringing eyes and people to what's going on there in Everett, right? Yeah, that's right. I always joke and say that if you're going to have a government job, I have the best government job you can have. Nice. You know, I've sort of built uh, my professional, my adult professional career around sort of telling the world about how much I love Everett and trying to create experiences for people here in Everett. I started with the city as a contractor, mostly in kind of marketing and communications work. And Nick helped uh, bring me on to this role. It's been just under three years now. But I manage the city's tourism, events, and arts programs. Wow. I I read a nice piece on you in 425. Congratulations on that, 425 Magazine. Yeah, and it talked about uh, just it seems like you have a real passion for letting people know all the cool things that are happening there in Everett. Yep, I sort of built a whole identity around it, and uh, and I like it. You know, I love Everett. I moved here when I was 18, thinking that I would move to Seattle. You know, I grew up in Snohomish County. I was a musician, and I always wanted to move to Seattle to pursue art. But, you know, I kind of I stopped here as a as sort of training wheels when I first moved out as a young adult, and really fell in love with the community. Everett had everything that. I needed. It was easy for me to get plugged in. It was more affordable and it really supported the artist's entrepreneurial temperament that, you know, I have. I'm wondering back to you, Nick, as you see things like uh, extremely high rents and real estate costs in Seattle, are people, as Tyler sort of alluded to, kind of moving outside of Seattle and discovering places like Tacoma and Everett? We've seen a huge migration and growth just over the last you know, two and a half years of the pandemic you referenced. I have new neighbors now that still work in Bellevue, Kirkland, mm. Redmond, Seattle, um, but have chosen Everett because, A, they're not working in their office nearly as frequently as they were. 
they're able to obviously afford a lot more square footage and uh, larger lots if they're looking for a home, you know, have children, uh, then yeah, then certainly they can in, uh, you know, the larger communities in King County currently. Everett, it seems, has gone through a bit of a, of a renaissance of late, correct? It's sort of, even though it's 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 kept that, uh, it seems to me at least outside looking in, that heartbeat of being a sort of a manufacturing, almost a blue-collar city, different things are happening now that are just sort of giving it, again, sort of a renaissance. Yeah, I think that's right. Tyler can certainly speak to more specifics, um, but over the last several years, I mean, really since 2018, we've been very intentional about trying to focus as much activity and vibrancy in our downtown. We have a very small downtown. It's historic and a cool place to check out if you haven't, but it's only about one square mile. But trying to yeah energize that with farmers markets that used to be down, uh, not in our downtown, that are mm-hmm. now on you know, every Sunday. Uh, sort of culture was recent. We have a large car show that has happened year over year, Memorial Day weekend, traditionally. Um, as you mentioned, this three-on-three tournament that just happened last weekend and yes. more events for the summer, I think, ever it is, um, yeah, from an arts perspective, just a, kind of a yeah, vibrancy perspective, uh, and a lot more mixed uh, use and multifamily housing uh, being constructed. I didn't realize that the downtown core was so condensed. Uh, but I, one thing I do realize is you have some wonderful views that go on uh, from the downtown core. Yeah, that's right. I think a lot of people uh, are surprised when they learn that Everett is a seaside community, particularly our downtown. It's sort of a butts Port Gardner Bay and has uh, yeah beautiful views of Port Gardner Sound, Hat Island, Whidbey Island, Comedo Island, and uh, you know, if you grow up in the in the Puget Sound region and you drive past Everett on I-5, but don't stop, you might think Everett is just any other city along I-5. But yeah, we're a beautiful waterfront community here. Definitely has its own character. Uh, the times that I've gone down there, I love the restaurants. Yeah, we have a great dining scene here in Everett, and that's certainly growing. It's particular restaurants that I that I really love now uh, that have opened up recently in downtown Everett. You know, we have Narrative Coffee, which is a coffee shop, but they have tremendous food. They actually won Best New Cafe in the World wow. um, just a few years ago from Sprudge Magazine. Then we have uh, some other new restaurants. Capers and Olives is a really nice uh, high-end Italian restaurant. And we have this new Asian fusion restaurant here downtown called Cafe Yuyu. That's tremendous. Wow. That's wonderful. Uh, you had mentioned the three-on-three basketball tournament. I know other cities have done that with great success, including Spokane. It's uh, it's an event where, unfortunately, is is already passed this summer, but certainly people should be planning for next year where the whole city gets behind it downtown. And uh, maybe talk briefly about that event, Tyler. Yeah, sure. So for those listening that aren't familiar with HoopFest, you know, HoopFest is this annual three-on-three basketball tournament that sort of transforms Spokane, and you said the whole city gets behind it. So this group is put on by one of the original founders uh, of HoopFest, and uh, his organization contacted us looking at Everett for a possible three-on-three basketball tournament. And certainly, you know, us here in economic development have recognized the huge and positive economic impacts that HoopFest has brought to Spokane. So you know, we really enjoyed getting to know the the three on three folks and sort of courting them. And they chose courting as a basketball pun, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so we courted them, brought them here to Everett. And yeah, over 200 teams played this past weekend. Um, downtown was full of life, you know, and it's for 
everybody, everybody, uh, all different skills and abilities. It's uh, affordable and it's just a blast. That sounds great. Uh, I actually work with a person, uh, one of the people that actually be editing this show. Uh, he used to do that in Spokane. Uh, his knees, not so much anymore, but he's going to be up there in, in Everett uh, uh, this next year to check it out for sure. Uh, going back to you, Nick, I'm curious about some excited things uh, or some things that you're excited about in Everett. Uh, let's talk about maybe the economy. Um, you, you'd already mentioned housing and the uh, availability increasing there. Anything else that you would like to cover about uh, Everett that's really positive right now? Well, I do think the growth is probably, yeah, the most positive and impactful thing for Everett. I mean, unlike King County, uh, Snohomish County just planned differently during uh, the inception of the Growth Management Act. So over the last 25 years, this county has seen a lot of residential growth occur kind of out in our outlying, outlying county urban growth areas hmm. and not in a dense way in our metropolitan centers like you see in uh, Bellevue and Seattle in particular, of course. Um, so we have kind of two book. I mean, we're a peninsula, so the port has just pulled off the first waterfront apartments in the city. Both buildings are now open and filling up simultaneously on the east side of the community on the river mm -hmm. uh, shelter holdings is developing what was an old tire factory um, it was a, a, a super fund environmental site that had to be cleaned up over a decade or more and we're now seeing uh, hundreds of apartment units townhouses single family homes go up there so creating kind of to tyler's point earlier real tangible access to the water's edge on both sides of this community I think are really going to kind of a turn a page for Everett in terms of what it, its residents experience. It sounds to me like your whole team there at the city is really working toward a an, uh, a diversified economy, something that is protected uh, as the um, economy ebbs and flows everywhere. That's right. Aerospace and manufacturing generally, I think, are always going to be the bread and butter of a community like Everett is in our DNA, mm -hmm. but we start to build new things and different things and innovate, right? And um, see biotech and other industries come into our community, I think. And that will only add to the resiliency of our economy going forward. With any kind of growth like that uh, comes some challenges. Uh, can you speak to the challenges that the city is experiencing right now, Nick? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the pandemic has heightened them. Uh, we were very proud in 2018 and 19 to see a fairly steep decline in uh, criminal activity, in particular property crimes, violent crimes. The pandemic has exacerbated the challenges um, of managing some of our unsheltered population, for instance. Our uh, few emergency shelters had to reduce their census count to keep a COVID-safe environment. So that has created uh, an increase in street-level social issues, no different than any county seat in the Puget Sound faces. You know, we have our county jail here. Most of our mental health substance use services are within a short distance from that small downtown I described. So trying to think through how we continue to regionalize the services that are helping trying to address these problems throughout Snohomish County, I think is, again, it's a chronic challenge for urban centers, but it's one that uh, we're fortunate here. We live in a very collaborative community, have great working relationships with our county leadership, 
with other mayors throughout the county. Uh, and it does seem like there's common purpose and common resolve to try to solve some of those types of problems together. That's wonderful. And I think that's totally key. You have to be on the same page and, and moving in the same direction. So that's refreshing to hear. Congratulations on just that atmosphere alone can go a long way. Let's talk a, a little bit about um, some things happening over, say, the rest of the summer and into fall. Uh, Tyler, can you talk about some events that you're excited about there at the city? Yeah, we have so many upcoming events through the rest of the summer and kind of leading into the fall and winter. And one of our strategies here in economic development, you know, is we've sort of downsized the events that we're producing. You know, the city invested a lot over the last 10 years or so in sort of being the key dominant producer in a lot of arts programming. But as Everett has grown and we've had more artists and entrepreneurs come to Everett, we're sort of shifting where we're just we're really focusing on being a great host to outside events and uh, artists and entrepreneurs so that they can do what they love to do. And with that has come just huge influx of new fun events. So, you know, we had talked about the three on three basketball tournament. That's looks like that's going to continue to be the second weekend in July okay. annually. But then we also have music at the marina which is Thursday nights, starts July 14th and goes through August 18th. And there's music every Thursday at 7 p.m. And that's on the docks at the Port of Everett, um, 1620 West Marine View Drive, to be specific. This year at Music at the Marina, we have Lady A, Aaron Crawford, the Dusty 45s, Eldridge Gravy. We've got a Queen Mother, which is a Queen cover band. And we have Little Eyes, which is a Fleetwood Mac cover band that's been pretty popular around Seattle lately. Another cool thing we have is Salty Sea Days is coming back. And Salty Sea Days uh, is an iconic Everett event that hasn't happened for a number of years. I remember it from when I was a kid. I would come to it with my family. So it's a little different. It's being produced by the Downtown Everett Association. It's going to be July 22nd and 23rd. And it's really just a nice big downtown block party with live music, beer garden, food trucks, uh, vendors and a ton of fun for the family and that's uh that's free to attend and then we have a this mural event that sort of moves around the whole country it's called going all city okay and graffiti artists from all over the country and mexico and canada sort of converge into different cities uh, every year and so this year they're uh, going to be in everett august 4th through august 8th okay. and then they'll probably come back again in a few years but you know these are private artists and private property owners and the building owners want to have murals on their walls and the artists want to create art with their community. And, you know, the city helps a little bit with it, but for the most part, we just kind of get out of the way and let the artists do what they do and let the private property owners kind of offer up their walls to these artists. And it's been a great way for us to see a lot of, uh, a lot of new murals in our downtown area. Sounds like a really diverse a set of events, which is nice because you attract just different people each each time, different demographics, if you will, ages and, and things like that, depending on what their interests are. Um, yes. So that's great. So you're infusing the city with some new dollars that wouldn't be there without these events. But you're also, it would seem to me, importantly, introducing and reintroducing the city to people that maybe haven't been to Everett for a while uh, or that live there and live in the suburbs and don't go downtown, for instance, a lot. Yeah, totally. You hit the nail on the head. Events are a great way for us to bring not only, you know, produce like great quality of life amenities and fun for our residents, but then, you know, I've always felt like one of Everett's biggest challenges are the stories that are told about Everett that are incorrect. 
that ever it is dirty, that ever it is unsafe, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we have these events, they bring, you know, tens of thousands of people into downtown Everett. And, you know, a lot of the, uh, some of those folks may not be familiar with downtown Everett and they see that it's a beautiful, clean, safe community right on the water. And yeah, so events are a great way for us to attract new folks. Understand. Uh, we have about uh, a minute and a half left here. Nick, any parting words from you? I would just say, yes, please come to Everett, visit our community. Um, one new exciting uh, expansion that's I can see from my window, Imagine's Children's Museum is one of the preeminent children's museums in the state. They're just completing uh, nearly doubling of their square footage and capacity. I think they've historically drawn about 250,000 visitors a year. They have great low income programs. Um, but it is just a fabulous place for families um, as kind of a jumping off point to introduce to Everett. So Imagine Children's Museum is open now, but their expansion will be opened in uh, late August and great uh, attraction that's um, just adding more excitement and learning opportunities for young kids. Uh, This is all great information. Um, What would be the best uh, way for people to learn more about the city upcoming events? I I would imagine there's a website that might be best. Correct. Yeah, the city's website for all of our tourism and events information is visit everett.com if you want to learn about events specifically visit everett.com slash events perfect it's got our, a whole list of events on there well i love everett's great place i hope people uh, that hear this that think mm, it's been a while since i've been up there check it out because they're going to be surprised pleasantly surprised how wonderful that city is nick harper deputy mayor for city of everett Tyler Chisholm, Tourism and Events Coordinator for the City of Everett. Thank you so much for both of your uh, times out of your schedule today. Yeah, great talking with you. You as well, and best of luck up there in uh, the City of Everett. I'm sure we'll keep our eyes on it as we move forward and love to have you back. So thank you again for your time, Nick and Tyler, and for you, the audience. Really appreciate it. And for listeners of Spotlight on Success each and every week, because there will be yet another interesting conversation. Best to you all as we head through this week. At Big Brothers Big Sisters Puget Sound, one youth, one mentor, plus one moment can unlock limitless potential. When you sign up to become a mentor with Big Brothers Big Sisters, you are matched one-on-one with a child in your community, a child with big potential. Hundreds of local youth are waiting. Be there for one of them. Big Brothers Big Sisters Puget Sound. Sign up today at MentorSeattle.org. That's MentorSeattle.org. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and along with Eric Crema, we thank you for listening today. Also, thanks to Daniel Bergner, Jim Whitaker, Everett Guest, Nick Harbour, and Tyler Chisholm for spending their time with us today. Next week, from almost live fame, Pat Cashman, a real treasure in this community. What's he doing now? Who are his favorite comedians? We also delve into some serious issues that affect our country and state today. That's Voices of Experience next week with Pat Cashman. Any comments about what you heard today? You can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Also, let us know what you would like to hear that we may not be addressing today. Again, that phone number is 425-653-1166. What's Voices of Experience all about? We talk with people with experience in 
public affairs, travel, fitness, education, history, current events, and with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. Voices of Experience airs on Kixie Wednesdays at 3 o'clock p.m. and is simulcast with Hubbard's sister station, KKNW, 1150 a.m. And Voices of Experience is rebroadcast on Sundays, Kixie only, at 11 o'clock a.m. My name is Paul Casey. Thanks to Eric Crema, host of Spotlight on Success, executive producers Steve Mills and Benny Mathers. One comment before I go, I always like to say this, that experience is our best teacher. Quote of the week, I can't change the direction of the wind, but I can adjust the sails to always reach my destination. Jimmy Dean. Ah, you just heard in the background my dog Sadie. She is just helping us sign off today. And one more passage before we go. You're not done yet. And it's about listening. It really struck me as something worth absorbing, I guess, lack of a better definition. And it is submitted by Iran Mithay. She wrote a book called Listening for Well-Being, Conversations with People Not Like Us. And my cousin, Tom Casey from Massachusetts, tipped me off to this uh, quote, and I want to read it to you. But here it is, uh, listening. It's time to press the pause button, put our smartphones on silent, shut down the tweets, trolls, and sound bites, and stop the windmills in our minds. It's time to listen, to listen to the whispers in the trees, to the caring of our hearts, and most of all, voices of people not like us. Then we will learn and find solutions for living together on our shared earth. What if the second deadliest cancer in men and women could be prevented? Would you try to avoid the pain? And what if you could protect yourself without leaving your home? Colorectal cancer is highly preventable. Screening is important, safe, and most people have options. Ask your doctor which screening test is right for you. Learn more from the Colorectal Cancer Alliance at GetScreened.org. You've been listening to the Voices of Experience Radio Network. No promotional fees have been paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. And finally, experience is our best teacher. 